0: Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. D-Day is approaching for Theresa May's Brexit deal with the EU. The British Prime Minister opens five days of debate today, Tuesday, in the House of Commons that will culminate in a historic vote on the deal a week from now. There have been other developments today on the Brexit front and Dennis Staunton, our London editor, will join me shortly to bring us up to date. But first this week, it's to Paris. The streets of the French capital last Saturday, where an anti government protest turned violent, leading to large scale damage to property around the Arc de Triomphe and Champs Elysees and more than 400 arrests. More than 260 people were injured. The demonstration was one of many that took place across France at the weekend and followed weeks of increasingly violent protests organised by the so called Gilets Jaunes or Yellow Vests movement against planned fuel tax increases. Four people have been killed in the violence to date. It all amounts to a very significant challenge to the authority and credibility of the French president, Emmanuel Macron, and today his government backed down in the face of the protests, announcing a suspension of the fuel tax increase for six months. Lara Marlowe, our Paris correspondent, has been following this story, and she joins me now from Paris. Um, Lara, before we get to the significance of, of today's development and the, that French government decision, could you tell us something first about this Chilet-Jean yellow Vests movement? Where did it spring from?
1: well, it's been a brewing for a long time, uh, without anyone realizing it. In fact, that's what the Prime Minister said in his in his speech. He said um this this was bubbling away. It was often silent uh, out of out of pride. He said, but today it's expressing itself with force and in a collective way. Um I think it probably goes back to Macron's first summer in power when he uh, did away with part of the wealth tax, which was very ill received, and he also decreased their housing allowance. Uh, and he, he's, he's also raised taxes on uh, old age pensioners. And there has been a perception, not just a perception, it is fact that purchasing power for the very wealthy in France has risen significantly, while it has decreased for the poorest French people. And it's the basically the injustice of this situation, the really flagrant income uh, inequality in France which has egged these people on, and and it just exploded um, three weeks ago. Suddenly, it took on a, a name, les gilets jaunes, and a symbol: these these yellow vests that all French motorists are required to carry in their cars. And I think it, in the beginning, the government thought it would just sort of go away. Um, I was at a meeting with one of Macron's advisors, where he he made fun of Jacqueline Moreau, who's one of the the initial leaders of the of the movement. Um, and it, but they didn't go away and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And the polls show that something like 80% of the French support them. Now it's, it's said that the, um, the vandals who did most of the damage last Saturday are either extreme left or extreme right. There's an anarchist streak in the movement. Uh, but despite this violence, the majority of French people still support uh, the Yellow Vest, and a lot of them don't even mind the radicalization of the movement. Uh, France, as you know, is is deeply um, impregnated by this revolutionary spirit. The glorification of the French Revolution; uh, they're taught this in schools, and the, uh, the the feeling among French people is always unless. Uh, you resort to violence. Unless you go to the streets, unless you make yourself heard, you will never get anything from the government. And what has happened now is that the tables have turned. Uh, The street is is in power today, and the government is on the run. And that's what uh, the prime minister's speech today showed.
0: And how is the movement organized? It does does it have any leaders as such, or it's a kind of grassroots movement? But but you know how, it, how does it operate?
1: Well, it's the first time actually in France that I know of that a, a, a movement has been it, it, organized. Isn't really even the right verb because it's it's very haphazard and and chaotic. To, but it's happening on social media. Uh, and the interior ministry says that now they've stopped using Facebook and social media and they are resorting to these encrypted uh, means like WhatsApp and uh, other encrypted sites, uh, So, which makes them very hard for the police to follow to know what's going on. In fact, the interior minister said last night in a hearing that um, Francis neglected intelligence on domestic opposition because they were worried about the Islamist uh, jihadist threat. And they haven't, they aren't really able to get a handle on these people and how they're organizing and what they're doing. Uh, so it's its very scattered. Um, there were at least 13 websites yesterday Calling for what they call Act Four of the of the movement, which would be the, the fourth big demonstration, uh, that's supposed to take place next Saturday, and the government not only can't control it, can't really they 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 impo- they can't even keep an eye on it. They don't really know who's doing what and how. Uh, And there there have been about a dozen so-called spokespersons who've emerged, but as soon as they put their name to something, like there was a petition in one of the Sunday papers to calm things down, they are denounced on social media by other gilets jaunes. So nobody really owns the movement. Um, A lot of the sympathizers uh, of the gilets jaunes in the demonstrations have told journalists that they like Marine Le Pen's national rally, her Rassemblement National. There seems to be a strong... Populist, nationalist, far right element, but it it goes beyond that. It's basically the middle, lower middle class. I'd say it's French people who've moved out of the big cities, who have to use their cars a lot, and who suffered a lot from the increase in fuel cost. People who feel neglected by the government and who feel they've been treated. Um, very unfairly by the government. It's also people earning low salaries, uh, people earning one or €2,000 a month who can't make ends meet, who who say that they they can't even buy um, fish, for example, which is very expensive. Fruit and vegetables are very expensive. Everything's expensive. Inflation is running at about 2.5%. And the government has unindexed salaries, which used to be um, linked to inflation, so that now when prices go up, um, people are out of pocket.
0: And that lack of a structure for the movement or lack of a conventional structure, it makes it very difficult to negotiate with, doesn't it?
1: Absolutely. In fact, the prime minister was supposed to, he had offered to negotiate with the gilets jaunes today uh, at Matignon and his office. And uh, basically it fell through because the, the um, yellow vest who was supposed to come said they were getting death threats. Uh, there's a lot of violence just in the air. Uh, there's this sort of constant threat of violence that this feeling that anything could could explode anytime anywhere. Um, not so much literally explode, but just that that you know vandals can suddenly break windows just to start looting. Um, last night, the ambulance drivers had a big demonstration around the Place la Concorde and I could hear I'm um, several blocks away but I could hear the, uh, the 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 noise of it they were all um, hooting their horns and uh, there were sirens and this sort of thing so and and Mantignon for example the Prime minister's office is, is near to where I live as well and that street has been blocked completely for days and days now because um, police are afraid of people uh, trying to you know do graffiti attack the buildings um, that sort of thing there was one gilet jaune who was received by the Prime Minister on Friday, and actually he saw Macron very briefly today. Um, he said he had done a hunger strike. He's a pacifist. He had walked from chalon sur saone that's um, near Lyon, all the way to Paris. So it's not really clear if this man is representative of anything or if he's just a, a, a kind of loner loser who's appealing to the highest uh, people in the land to help him. Uh, but thats he's the only person so far who's, who's spoken to the highest authorities.
0: And given all of that discontent you talked about, there, Lara, are these fuel tax increases, and it's also known as a carbon tax because because part of the aim is to, to curb carbon emissions. Are they sort of the real um, uh, f- focus of these protests, or were they just a trigger for for something much wider than that?
1: Uh, they were they were just the trigger. In fact, the the measures uh, proposed by the prime minister show. Uh, that he knows that the, that the fuel taxes were just part of it. That was the the first thing he proposed was suspending those. But he also says he's going to stop a programmed increase in gas and, and electricity um, bills over the winter. Um, they've they've realized that uh, people are really hurting, and and it had often been predicted that Macron's presidency would would turn. Uh, more socially conscious, well, now it has finally done so, but only under duress um, another another sort of sop that the prime minister has thrown to the to the mob, if you like, is that they are suspending they were going to do increased um, tests on motor vehicles sort of spot checks on on vehicles to see if they were polluting and so on and that's another thing that angered the the yellow vest a lot they're going to give a mobility bonus to people who rely on their cars to go to work uh, and they are initiating three months of of uh, widespread what they call global discussions on on, on uh, fiscal policy on taxation because uh, as um, edouard Philippe said in his speech France has the highest taxes in europe and People just feel like they're being taxed to death. Um, the problem, of course, is that the government, the government has lost um, several billion euro just in the measures announced today. Um, there have been hundreds of, of millions of, of euro of damage to the economy through these demonstrations. They are going to have to find a way to pay for all this. And as you know, France has very, very high social spending. So if, on the one hand, they can't demand any more in taxation. On the other hand, if they have to decrease social spending, that too will cause unrest. Uh, And there is a feeling that we're set for a long period of civil unrest in France and also that Macron's ability to push through his reform agenda has been seriously, seriously impaired. Um, It was significant that his Minister for European Affairs Uh, announced the results of their citizens' consultations on Europe today in total silence. Not a single uh, radio station covered it. It was supposed to be a big event. This was one of Macron's pet projects, and it has just fallen by the wayside. Nobody cares anymore about the European policy. And also, it must be said that the environmental policy, remember, Macron had a one-planet summit a year ago, uh, and this, this carbon tax was part of France's commitment to... Decreasing its carbon footprint, um, that too is falling by the wayside. So he's having to sacrifice both his European policy. And his environmental policy to the demands of the street.
0: So th- this is quite a big clampdown by the government, isn't it, Lara? Because up to a Absolutely. day, or, up to a day or two ago, we were just hearing about the need for a security response and a you know a big clampdown on, on on violent demonstrations.
1: Yesterday, cabinet ministers were saying, "We will not change course. We will not change course." I heard uh, two ministers say that yesterday, and uh, suddenly today, the prime minister is saying, "We are changing course." He said, "I have heard you," uh, and he said, "Actually, you'd have to be deaf and blind." Not to see, not to hear. Uh, so it is, it is a complete reversal of policy, and the, the, the fear is that um, once the, the the street feels its power, that it, it will not give up. Um, there have been a lot of uh, yellow vests talking on radio and television today, and they're saying they're all saying it's not enough. Maybe it would have been enough in the beginning; uh, we would have stopped. But we're too angry now. We want more. And one of the demands is that Macron reinstate uh, the entire wealth tax as it was before he came to office. I don't see how he can do that. Um, This uh, measure was much loved by the business community, by business management. Um, Some fortunes had started even trickling back into France, people who'd left as tax exiles. Um, that is that is threatened now too because uh, because of these popular demands.
0: So these protests are going to continue, Lara. Are they? The next one was due to take place next Saturday. So, notwithstanding the government's measures today, you expect them to continue?
1: There will be some kind of demonstration on Saturday. Um, they have the right to demonstrate, but the prime minister reminded the yellow vest that they must. Get permission, they must file an application. Well, it's actually, it's not permission, they just have to file a notice of intent with the prefecture. He said it won't be tolerated without them filing a, a, a notice. Uh, I don't think my hunch is that it will be less violent than last Saturday. I, I hope I'm right. I think. A lot of people, uh, perhaps not the leaders, but a lot of people will say this is going in the right direction. The government has hurt us. And and so we, we, we've won. Although the suspension of the carbon tax is only for six months, uh, which may not have been a wise move by the prime minister, because people will think unless we keep the pressure up on the government, um, they're, they're not going to stick with us. They're going to back down. So it's it's really anybody's guess. Um, I, I had a lunch with a high ranking official who said that... Um, She fears that this kind of violence now, once it gets started, it's very, very hard to stop. And the the danger is that there could be more vandalism, more marches that we're in for a whole season of it, as as has often happened in the past. It'll be very, very hard to put the genie back into the bottle. Perhaps Saturday will be peaceful, that you can be sure that there will be thousands and thousands of police and, and probably army as well, on the streets to make sure that we don't see a repetition of last Saturday. But the question is, what happens over the next few months?
0: And Lara, you've been covering politics in France and elsewhere for, for you know, a good long time now. We, we both observed a political crisis or two in our time. As political crises go, how, how would you rate this one for Emmanuel Macron?
1: It's devastating. Uh, it's, it's devastating. I, I personally had very, very high hopes when he was elected, Um he was young, dynamic, intelligent, uh, visionary, leader. And it's it's very, very sad to see him reduced uh, to. He's, he's almost a prisoner in the Elysee. I mean, he's canceled all his appointments. He's, um, he was supposed to go to Serbia uh, yesterday, or no, sorry, he was supposed to leave today, I believe, for, for, on Serbia. He canceled that trip. He hasn't said a word since he came back from the G20 summit in Argentina on, on, on Sunday. And everyone is saying, "Well, so where is the president? What's happened to him?" You know, and unless the problem is he, he makes very good speeches, he's made good speeches all along, and one has the impression that he is just inaudible. That no matter what he says or no matter what he does now, uh, people will hate him. They will find fault with him. Um, there's a very, very strong element of, of class struggle here. They they hate him because he is intelligent and well educated, and because for them he represents an elite which has failed over decades. It's not just his, his term of office, but this elite in power, this technocracy, which has not been able to conquer unemployment. Unemployment is still nearly 10% in France, much higher than elsewhere. Um, they haven't been able to, to conquer crime or insecurity. Uh, terrorism, the attacks of uh, 2015 and 16, and and immigration, and actually there has been a lot done, uh, but that's not really seen by these people, um, and they feel the government is just impotent. They've lost all faith in it, and this is um, laying the bed for, for populism, for someone like Marine, sorry Marine Le Pen's niece, Marion Maréchal, someone like her uh, to win the presidency in 2020. That, that is the big fear. That is what is sort of lurking uh, ahead in the future if Macron fails.
0: And, and and Lara, just just to, to finish up something you touched on earlier I was interested in, you know, about f- France and how French the French approach protests, the spirit of revolution and so on. Are French people more tolerant of sort of violent protests than yes. than other countries? I have my own experience and I I was formerly in a former life I was the agriculture correspondent in the Irish press, and I remember we used to go to Brussels now and again for these big Europe wide farmer demonstrations you know and the Irish farmers would be going along with their placards, you know save the family farm and so on but the 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 the, the streets would look like a war zone because the French farmers up ahead would erect the place before you'd have you'd have you'd have mm-hmm. caught up with them and the lamp you know cars were smashed lampposts knocked over and so on so mm-hmm. so why is that or why are the french so tolerant of that kind of you know demonstration?
1: I can give you one date that says it all, 1789, the French Revolution. And over the, ever since, it has been glorified and glorified, and politicians always talk about, they praise the revolutionary spirit of France. It's a, it's a sacred cow. Uh, Now, the, the historian Francois Furet has started, has said that this needs to be revised in French intellectual circles, uh, including Macron, I'm sure. There's a feeling that the revolution has been over overstated, overpraised, that the things that they, they claim, that they credit to the revolution, actually are have their root in uh, the Enlightenment, um, human rights, uh, all, all, all of the good things which are, are credited to the revolution actually came before the revolution with the French philosophers. Uh, but it's, it's created this attitude that um, I have rights, I am entitled uh, the government owes me everything, and if the government is not being fair, if there's injustice, I go in the street and I burn something down, and I, you know, I attack a public building, and so on and so forth. And that you're right, Chris. There is a very high tolerance for that. I've been kind of keeping an eye on the the trials that have started for, of the people who were arrested on on Saturday, and most of them get suspended prison sentences, which which is is pretty meaningless. You know, it's a, it's a slap on the wrist, and so you can go and smash a a plate glass window of a bank on the Champs-Élysées, and you'll get a three-month or a six-month suspended sentence, whatever. It's There needs to be a sort of mass re-education of the population. They need to understand that change is best when it's gradual, incremental, peaceful, um, that things can be accomplished that way, because by having these big upheavals, the, these huge outbursts of, of uh, protest and violence... Ultimately, nothing really gets accomplished. I mean, the, the example used over and over now is the May 68 revolution. And actually, that did achieve a lot of change in social policy. Uh, it led to the legalization of abortion, uh, to a much, much more complete rights for women. And this, this revolution now, if, it, if indeed that's what it is, Uh, is leading to a measure, I suppose, of of greater social justice. But it's just a pity that it had to get this bad for the government to listen, to realise that people on very low salaries are really suffering in this country and that they need more equitable policies.
0: Lara, thanks for that.
2: There's things in life you just can't control, like the weather, the traffic, or the fact that spilled coffee seems to love white shirts. But it's all good, because there's something you'll always be able to control your company's finances. SAP Concur integrates all your business's expenses, travel and invoicing in one simple solution, giving you the visibility and control you need to drive your business forward. SAP Concur. It's how the best run businesses make their expenses run better. Learn more at concur.co.uk/control.
0: We're going to the UK now, and today, Prime Minister Theresa May opens five days of debate in the House of Commons that will culminate in a vote next Tuesday on her Brexit deal with the EU. For more on this and other Brexit developments, I'm joined now by Dennis Staunton, our London editor. Dennis, we were all set last night for the debate on Mrs May's deal to begin, and and, and we're still set for that. But but last night, uh, Monday, the Speaker of the House of Commons, John Bercow, tr- threw a spanner in the works by allowing time for a debate on a motion to find the government in contempt of Parliament for refusing to publish the legal advice they'd received from the Attorney General on Brexit. What's that all about, and, and how significant is that?
2: What it's about is that uh, last month, Parliament uh, debated a motion uh, and passed a motion uh, demanding that the government should bring to Parliament and show MPs all of the legal advice that the Attorney General, Geoffrey Cox, had given to the Cabinet about Brexit and the Brexit deal. And so the government had initially in the debate, they had opposed it, but then they they saw they were going to lose this motion. And so they abstained. And so the, the motion passed. But instead of complying with uh, that instruction from Parliament, what they decided to do was to publish a version uh, of uh, of this advice, so a kind of a report on the advice, which they published yesterday on Monday. And then Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney General, came into Parliament yesterday and took questions for two and a half hours about his legal advice and about his legal opinion on uh, on the, um, the Brexit deal and particularly about the backstop, the Northern Ireland backstop. But this was not good enough as far as the MPs were concerned, because they said, look, we uh, passed this motion and you already during the debate said that you would do what you've just done now. But actually, we asked you to do something else and you can't defy Parliament. And so they then, uh, the opposition parties, including the DUP, they all wrote to the speaker asking for a debate and uh, a motion uh, to find the government in contempt of parliament, a rather ancient uh, notion, because they had uh, defied the uh, the instruction of parliament. Now, we're talking in uh, the middle of the afternoon on Tuesday, and the MPs are debating this right now. And the opposition are saying more or less what I've just said. Now, the government is saying that, you know, they uh, can't break the convention that they don't publish legal advice because this would make uh, the running of government impossible because, you know, rather like any kind of attorney-client privilege.
0: Yeah, we can hear, Dennis, actually, sorry, we, we can hear uh, what Geoffrey Cox had to say about it yesterday. It was quite a forceful defence of, of his position. So where does this, the limits of this power end? Does
2: it extend to cabinet minutes? does it extend to the papers of the Secret Intelligence Service? Is the House, by means of this motion, to command any paper of any kind, central to the interests of this nation, without even being able to check that by its release they are causing or might cause severe damage to the public interest? I invite the Honourable Member to consider the implications of the absolute rule that he is talking of. It cannot be right. In this case, I am convinced that in order to disclose any advice that might have been given would be fundamentally contrary to the interests of this country. It's no use the baying and shouting of members opposite. What I am trying to do is guard the public interest. That's all. And it's time, and it is time they grew up.
0: So, Dennis, notwithstanding the merits of the case he's making, the fact is that the House of Commons did vote, you know, to force the government to release this this legal advice. So where is this going from here? I cut you off there in your prime.
2: Well, one option would be uh, one proposed by Ken Clarke, the former Conservative Chancellor. And he said, well... Why doesn't the government look at uh, publishing a redacted version of the advice so that, for example, they could redact any information which might uh, reveal too much information about the government's negotiating position with the EU? And one MP suggested during the debate just a little while ago that one of the elements that might be, for example, in the uh, attorney general's legal advice is an analysis of the weakness, of whatever weaknesses there are in the Irish government's approach. And so that if the you had to kind of go back to renegotiating the backstop, that you wouldn't really want to hand that information over to the Irish government and over to the public. So anyway, so I think that so this debate is going to go on. It's actually, it could go on until seven o'clock this evening. Uh, and, uh, and then the, the vote, if the government doesn't move, and if, for example, it doesn't suge- accept uh, the suggestion of Ken Clark, then the government will be defeated. And if that happens, uh, the uh, then Parliament has a number of options, one of which would be to suspend. The ministers that uh, are responsible, who would be the Attorney General and also David Lidington, who's the uh, effective Deputy Prime Minister, because he was the person who is responsible for uh, for making these decisions so that uh, they could suspend those two from the House. And that could have important implications because they may still be suspended then uh, next Tuesday when the Parliament votes on um, Theresa May's Brexit deal.
0: And as we know, she needs every vote she can get in support of her deal. She does. Another development today, Tuesday, and It's just to deal with briefly, I'd, I'd like to get your take on how significant it is. Uh, the European Court of Justice was given a legal opinion by its Advocate General. It's, n- it's not binding, but the legal opinions by Advocates General are usually followed by the courts subsequently. And it was to the effect that the UK essentially can pull out of Brexit if it wants in advance of, of departure next March. It can do so unilaterally. It doesn't need the approval of the, the other member states to stop the Brexit process. Uh, how
2: significant is that? I think it's an important uh, decision if it is carried through, potentially, because uh, the uh, European Council Legal Service, for example, had argued that uh, this petition ought to be rejected because uh, they said that if you allowed a country to uh, you know, to invoke Article 50 and then uh, to go almost two years down the process and then to unilaterally be able to revoke the decision to leave the European Union, that this could be an invitation uh, to other countries to effectively um, mess up the operation of the European Union by, uh, you know, by invoking the, uh, the the procedure to leave, and then in a frivolous way deciding to revoke it. So what it does do is that it means that those people who are arguing for a second referendum, for example, uh, will have their arguments strengthened because one of the arguments against uh, the business of holding a second referendum is that uh, time is running out and that unless the European Union agree that uh, the fact is that Article 50 is, uh, you know, the negotiating period will run out and the UK will leave the European Union at the end of March 2019. What This ruling, if it it happens, will say is that, uh, you know, if Britain does want to uh, hold a second referendum and Europe is not really playing along, that it has got the power to unilaterally revoke its decision to leave. And then, of course, it would be under the treaties able to invoke it again if it so chose a few months later. So I think it probably does strengthen the hand of those people who want to have another referendum on Brexit.
0: Now, to come uh, to the, the debate on the deal, Mrs. May's uh, Theresa May's deal with, with with the EU, it was to begin today. We're, we're not sure what time it's going to begin. It could be late this evening if the if the other debate we just talked about on the contempt issue, if that if that goes on. But what are we expecting to happen now over
2: the next few days? Well, there are five days of debate. Uh, eight hours every day, uh, right up until uh, early next week. And they're going to approach it thematically. So, for example, on uh, Wednesday, they're looking at foreign policy. On Monday of next week, they're going to, uh, the theme is going to be the union. And so Karen Bradley, the Northern Ireland Secretary, she'll uh, open the debate on on that day. But What we're expecting, I think, is that Theresa May and her allies will make the case that this deal is the best deal available, that it's the only way that you can guarantee that Britain will leave the European Union next year, because by rejecting this deal, that MPs would open up a world of uncertainty and that uh, among the possible outcomes are a no-deal Brexit, which uh, most MPs find unacceptable, or indeed no Brexit at all, because uh, if Parliament rejects the idea of leaving without a deal, then you could have somehow a second referendum, which would uh, perhaps reverse Brexit, or indeed, as we've just been talking about, if the uh, the UK were to decide to revoke Article 50. And of course, her other threat is that it could lead to a general election, which could put Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party in power. And that's something that's uh, obviously anathema to Conservative MPs. So that's the argument that will be made in favour of it. And then uh, the question is, how many people on the Conservative benches are going to join the opposition and the GUP in arguing against it? And on the basis of public statements so far, there are dozens of Conservative MPs who have publicly stated that they will vote against it, not just that they're opposed to it, but that they will vote against it. Now, having said all of that, the experience of uh, debates and votes in the House of Commons is that even when people stand up in the House of Commons and say they're going to vote in a particular way, once the, the, uh, the whips get at them and the vote approaches, they can often change their minds. And so what you could find is that the number of conservative rebels is maybe half of the number that uh, is currently being talked about. But even on that basis, uh, because by some counts, there are already almost 100 conservative MPs opposed to this thing. But even if only 50 of them voted against the government, the government would lose this by 100 votes.
0: Right, yeah. And then just to look then maybe more closely at these different scenarios that may may emerge after next Tuesday. If she does win the vote and you've just explained why that seems unlikely but just to put this one to one side first, if she wins the vote does that mean Britain leaves the EU next March under the terms of her deal no, no, banana skins, no ifs or butts.
2: Yes, it does really. I mean, there are, there are some potential banana skins next year, insofar as there is some implementation legislation that has to go through Parliament, and uh, you know. But but generally speaking, I mean, if she gets a coalition of uh, of a majority in favour of her deal, and she can hold that majority together, uh, then that's what's going to happen. So it's going to be pretty clear that uh, you know, if the if Parliament votes next week in favour of the deal, Britain will the European Union on the 29th of March 2019 with a transition period of more than two years or of of around two years, possibly more, and with the Northern Ireland backstop in place as a backstop in case they don't find uh, any other solution. So that's what will happen.
0: And I know there are multiple scenarios here, but I suppose to simplify them as much as we can, If if she loses, but by a narrow margin, where does that leave her and where does that leave Brexit?
2: Well, I think what if it was a narrow margin, by which I mean, say, by 30 or 40 votes, then I think uh, she would be able to go to uh, to say to parliament that she's going to go back to brussels there's a uh, the vote is on tuesday the 11th and there's a summit in brussels on thursday the 13th of december and so she could say i'm going to go over to brussels and i'm going to say uh, i need some uh, clarifications or some kind of something extra a concession probably on the backstop and on the terms in which britain would be able to withdraw from the backstop and that could take the form of uh, of some addendum to the political declaration there are all kinds of forms it might be able to take and then the question is, would that be enough to sway, uh, you know, a, a couple of dozen MPs uh, to move uh, the other way? And then she would go back and the vote would happen again in uh, in January. And uh, and then if it all went through, then we go back to uh, scenario A, which is that Britain leaves on the 29th of March, according to her deal.
0: And then there's the, sort of the 100 vote scenario you mentioned. Um, where does that leave her? Can she possibly stay in office, for example, if that happens,
2: if she loses think- that heavily? I think that's uh, that's where it, it faces difficulties because if it, uh, if the deal is defeated by such a wide margin, it's very going to be very difficult for her to go back to Brussels and say, "I just need a tweak here or there." At that stage, you would, you know, what you would need is something which would effectively render the backstop inoperable. So what you would have to do would be to get uh, something put into the treaty and to the withdrawal agreement uh, saying that Britain would be able to unilaterally leave the backstop. And that would really mean that the backstop is inoperable because it would no longer be an effective guarantee uh, or insurance policy for the border. And that's something that the European Union is most unlikely to accept. So then uh, what could happen is that uh, you have a leadership challenge and that, uh, you know, that, you know, Graham Brady, who's the chairman of the 1922 committee, he receives more than 48 letters from a Conservative MP saying they like a vote of confidence in her leadership. Uh, then she either wins that or loses it. If she loses that confidence vote, then you uh, go to a Conservative leadership election. It's possible you could kind of do that f- over the Christmas, New Year. Recess, and so that you might be able to have a new Conservative leader in place by early January. Uh, The problem is that if Theresa May does stay in place, her room for manoeuvre is quite limited because there are a couple of options uh, apart from her deal that are on the table. One is a no-deal Brexit. And that's something which a majority of MPs uh, think is unthinkable. And so, before they actually start talking about the uh, about the Brexit deal itself this evening, uh, MPs are going to discuss possible amendments. One of which is an amendment that would mean that if Theresa May came back in January with uh, the Brexit deal again, that cons- that the MPs would be able to rule out. No deal, a no deal Brexit. They would be able to say that whatever else happens, we're not leaving with uh, with no deal. But also that they would be able to instruct the government as to what to do next if her deal was rejected a second time. So it's possible that the no deal option would be ruled out. Another option that's being discussed around the place is that uh, Britain would remain in the European Economic Area like Norway, so that it accepts all the rules of the single market and it accepts freedom of movement, for example, and that it would also remain in the customs union. And that would solve most of the problems that, say, we have um, uh, with the Irish border where Brexit is concerned. And But it would obviously mean that Britain would effectively remain as a member of the European Union, but with no vote and no say. And the problem is that although some Conservatives, including some cabinet ministers, think that this is not a bad idea as a temporary solution. So, in other words, that you park yourself in Norway for a bit, possibly not asking the Norwegians how they feel about that too much, but still you park yourself there for a few years, and then when you're ready... Uh, you negotiate this new free trade arrangement and you get further away from the European Union. The problem for Theresa May is that she has made Brexit all about immigration and about freedom of movement. And it seems to be the one red line of her various red lines that she's not prepared to cross. And this is an option, therefore, that she would find it difficult to pursue. And so there you might need a new leader of the Conservative Party. And then the final option, of course, is to have a second referendum. And the uh, and how to affect that it would be one way would be that Theresa May would say. Look, uh, I've tried to negotiate Brexit, Uh, a Brexit deal. You know, the people have asked us to leave the European Union, but Parliament has rejected my deal. They've rejected it for different reasons, some because they say it's not enough Brexit, some that it's too, too much Brexit. And so we have to return this decision to the people. And then she would probably argue that you should have three options on the table to remain in the European Union, to leave on the terms of her Brexit deal or to leave with no deal at all. And so that would be one way of trying to do it. Another way of trying to do it would be if Parliament asserted itself and somehow a majority was formed to say that uh, they should have a second referendum. Uh, That's obviously a bit more difficult. But having said that, if Parliament does assert itself against the government, Parliament does tend to win, particularly in the British system. They fought a civil war over that principle, and so they tend to take it seriously.
0: Dennis Daunton in London, thank you. Well, that's all for this week. For more on these and other stories,
1: go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.